This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a discussion I moderated at the Coalition for Government Procurement's recent conference. My guest was Sunny Hashmi, the Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. I have to admit, Sonny, I was a little surprised when they named you the FAS Commissioner. I said he knows a lot about technology, but does he know a lot about acquisition? So walk me through, how did you come to be in this role? Why was this role exciting for you? I'll be honest, and I was surprised as well, <laughs> but but I am extremely uh, pleased to be here. And I think, I, I think where we are as an organization now, uh, it makes perfect sense. So a couple of things I'll mention. First of all, while it's true, most of my career prior to this role has been uh, in either building technology, running technology, or selling technology. I've also had the pleasure of being probably the only FAST commissioner in the last many years who has has actually been a buyer of FAS and a supplier to FAS. And so from that perspective, I, I believe that I do bring firsthand experience on how uh, the value of the FAS adds, which is tremendous, but at the same time, areas where we could probably be doing better in terms of the customer experience, processes that get in the way. In my last role, I was primarily responsible for, for you know, among many other things, leading our, our approach to the federal government, U.S. federal government, and they work very closely with FAS, both of the schedules program, the FedRAM program, and others. Also, if you actually look at what the new administration is, has accomplished, but also where the plans are, technology is going to be a core lever for us to move the needle on so many things from climate change to equity to uh, rebuilding the economy, responding to COVID and, and many, many other things. And so as we think about what the future of government mission looks like from a lens of technology, I think FAS has a critical role to play. And so much of what we do at FAS is not just, yes, we have a responsibility and a mission to transact and sell $75 billion worth of products and services every year. But we're also building and maintaining shared services in the technology space. We are, you know, ensuring that TTS continues to add tremendous value to agencies' missions, which I have like exciting things to share today if you, if you get into it. Uh, we're also challenged as a government organization with new challenges around cybersecurity, supply chain risk management. Many of those things touch data and technology. Last thing I'll say is that I think a lot of people think that acquisition itself is a process issue or a paperwork problem or a policy problem. And yes, policy is important, you know, understanding that deep policy. And I'm very fortunate to work with a team that understands acquisition policy backwards and forwards more than I will ever learn. But ultimately, acquisition is a data problem. If we have the right data at the right point in time, at the right point of purchase, the right point of sale, we can not only create great experiences, we can have deep insights into what is being bought, we can shape culture, we can move the needle on things like climate change, things like equity, things like small business enablement, and we can create great experiences for buyers and sellers along the way. So I believe that where the next four years of innovation needs to happen in acquisition is through automation and data. Not only collecting the data, analyzing it, making it available as a point of decision. And that's, that, that's an area that I feel very comfortable in. So I do feel that I have uh, something to contribute as we move forward in that area. That's very true. I mean, being being a customer. So let's start there because one of the things you mentioned, we've heard s- several times over the course of, of the last day and a half, is now that FAST is really into phase three of the modernization process for the schedules, they've made some a lot of progress about so like Calm is, is being released or is being piloted and you're seeing some progress there. You mentioned two big key priorities, customer experience, user experience, 
so let's start with those. What's some thinking around that? Because people hear that and they go, oh, that's just, you know, shine on top of an ugly right. car or, or a motorcycle. Yeah. You're, just, you're just polishing your motorcycle, but you can't make it work. No, that's a really good point. And that's exactly what we don't want to do, right? But that, that deep transformation takes time and it's very complicated. You know, I'm actually very pleased with the work that's gone in over the last three or four years around the federal marketplace strategy. I'm glad that while it, it, it took a little while to get off the ground, I'm glad that, you know, the right focus is put on the right foundation, all things underneath that strategy. And, and, and the fact is that what I like about the FMP is that the core tenants or the driving factor is not some complicated set of, you know, policy updates and so forth. It's, it's really designed as a guiding uh, force towards improving the customer experience, helping them buy the things better, find the things better, get better pricing, improving the FAS employee experience, uh, making sure that we reduce the burden, improve uh, productivity, improve compliance, and improving the supplier experience. So that is the lens to look at, right? FAS is a large organization. We do many things for many different customers. We work in many different industries and categories. We do shared services. We do acquisition strategy. We do acquisition implementation. We do GWAX. We do schedules. As a result, I think over time, and when I'm saying over time, over the last 20 years or so, we have um, created a lot of solutions, a lot of portals, lots of websites, lots of processes that I think has led to a kind of overcomplication and over, uh, over um, you know, added a lot of friction along the way. Today, if you look at the process of just a vendor getting on schedule, it requires them to log into multiple websites. It requires them to you know, uh, deal with arcane processes. We don't really make it very easy sometimes. So incrementally, there's been a focus on, let's create a little portal in front of it. Let's create some guidance. But I think that doesn't go, enough, uh, go far enough. So in order to fix that problem, and improve it from the ground up. We have to rethink not just the technology, but also the processes and systems, uh, as well as uh, you know the policies that, that go along with it. The whole point of FMP is that we invested in the first four set of initiatives very thoughtfully. Uh, they were very foundational. So if you go through those four, mass consolidation, right? It's been a lot of work. We're about to get into phase three of that project, but like largely over 90% of the contracts have been updated. We still have to work through a few complicated issues there that we will fill out over the rest of this year. But generally speaking, that is foundational. If we can't get that right, then we can't create great experiences on top of a consolidated schedule. Similarly, implementing a COM, which is a contract lifecycle management platform, has been foundational for us. As an organization that transacts $75 billion worth of acquisitions, we don't have a consistent and, 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 and common contract management platform. And that that as a result, we don't have the data points on where things are getting stuck. We don't have consistency in some of the processes that we're trying to implement. And so having that platform in place is foundational for us to build on. Similarly, the commercial marketplace pilot has uh, been early stages to kind of really explore a new model of doing transactional, low dollar value, high transaction volume uh, business. We now have some data points that we're like working on. We believe that there's a place for that strategy alongside our own e-commerce platform called Advantage. And we're gonna we're gonna start to work on that phase two strategy as we move forward. So we've invested in some foundational work, and it hasn't been easy work, and it, it frankly hasn't shown the results yet. But now that we have some of these things in place, we're excited to announce that uh, we're going to be expanding the scope of the FMP. Uh, more information is going to be coming your way soon, and we're going to be adding four additional cornerstones. If there could be a building with eight cornerstones uh, under that uh, under that umbrella, including products marketplace, which is going to include both Advantage as well as the commercial, market, uh, commercial marketplaces we're working with, services marketplace, which starts to address that question around 
What is our service contract strategy? What is a Mac? What is a GWAC? What are their schedules? Where are the gaps? How do we deliver most value, reduce burden on, on, on the vendor community? We're going to start to think really deeply about, you know, like the next iteration of catalog management. And similarly, we're going to be focusing on data and other uh, automation, uh, uh, you know, opportunities to reduce friction. So the reason why I say all of that is that, listen, we are working on a set of systems processes and, and experiences that have been built over the last 30 years. In fact, today in FAS, there are systems running that are 40 years old. So it's not just about putting a new lipstick on the, on, on, on the same uh, backend. It's not about just, just adding a little bit of bot or a little automation to connect the dots. We have to fundamentally rethink some of these things. And that fundamental rethink requires time and, and, and effort. One thing that is clear to me is that we need to engage with industry and our customers along the way. This can't just be, uh, we collected the requirements once, four years later, we come to you and it doesn't work. It's got to be an iterative, continuous conversation. So look forward to sharing more on that front. But, you know, we're about to embark in this pretty massive foundational transformation journey for FAS. Um, and along the way, we're cleaning up messes that we can clean up as we encounter them. So how do we do internal um, cost allocation? How do we measure the impact that we create along the way for agencies? Some of those questions haven't been perfectly answered yet. And so, yes, you know, the great experience is going to be the North Star. But in order to kind of deliver that, you have to pull the thread and all the things that lead up to that. That's what makes it complicated, but we're super excited to get started and uh, all the great work that's already been going on for the last two years, three years. We want to build on that and continue the momentum forward. I know you said more information is coming, but I've got to ask the follow-up question. You, you know I was going to. Each of those areas, you're going to look at the products marketplace or the services marketplace both within that area, the services area, let's say, but then you're also going to look more broadly across the entire FAS to say, how does that fit into the broader ideas? Walk me through, through some thinking about how you came to these four areas, why these four areas versus, you know, you could pick four others, I'm sure you probably had 16. To me, the biggest North Star is uh, directly listening to our customers and suppliers, right? So these are areas that are not new. We know that there's uh, opportunity for us to improve in these spaces as we start to look at the customer experience, as we start to actually journey map the supplier experience, somebody getting on schedule, somebody actually transacting business against us, we've realized that there's a lot of confusion, a lot of friction in this space. And, uh, and, and that requires some deep thinking and that requires some, uh, some effort. And so, yes, you're right. There's many other areas that we can identify, but ultimately I look at FAS's mission as a broker between customers and suppliers with a significant amount of uh, effort that uh, falls on our plate as uh, FAS employees. And so if you actually keep that as a North Star, then it makes sense for us to have a, a, a tranche of efforts focused on the customer experience. And, and ultimately, you know, when, within it, you know, if you look at our data, if you look at the transactions that are going through, the majority of the transactions are in the service marketplaces, uh, and, and we have many, and whether it's in IT or non-IT services, and then we have, of course, a products uh, catalog and marketplace. Those experiences are slightly different. How you buy a product is slightly different than how you envision engaging with a vendor on services. And so we have to kind of provide that distinction. When it comes to products, we're seeing customers increasingly wanting to see a self-service type model, more of an e-commerce model. So that begs the question of what is the future of Advantage? How do we scale it? How do we make it more powerful? And then, of course, there's the new policy frameworks coming our way from Section 889 to Supply Chain Risk Management, Cybersecurity EO, CMMC compliance, and so forth, DFAR compliance. So we have to incorporate all of those as part of our thinking as well. So long story short is that the reason why these four bubble to the top is that we felt that this is the next set of 
you know, as you, as you think of those four initial areas as foundational, these next four build on what the work that we've done. We can actually leverage the work that's happened and actually start to create better experiences for both our customers and, and, and our suppliers. But also, I think it can create the most value uh, the quickest. It doesn't mean that we're not going to continue to invest in, of course, you know, there's a tremendous amount of work going on in the IAE space. There's a tremendous amount of fleet modernization going on when we're uh, merging over seven legacy systems into one modern fleet management system. But those are like somewhat niche work that FAS does. And of course, there's also foundational for all the EV work we're gonna do and so forth. But this is something that touches all of our portfolios across FAS and affects all of our vendors across all categories we work in. And so I feel that this is either the right kind of next bets to make. And then of course, you know, uh, I wanna create a culture here where we learn from our own mistakes, we iterate, we collect feedback and insight and we continue to make things better. And so as things evolve, we will continue to kind of fine tune it and we will continue to communicate with the industry through the FMP, you know, channels that we've been doing, doing a good job communicating through. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a discussion I moderated at the Coalition for Government Procurement's recent conference. My guest was Sunny Hashmi, the commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a discussion I moderated at the Coalition for Government Procurement's recent conference. My guest was Sunny Hashmi, the commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. All right, so we have our first question that came in. Tara writes a question that I was going to ask you, so let's start there, because there's plenty to talk through, right? We, you talked about commercial platforms. You talked about iteration, so there's the, the beta.sam to sam.gov merger, but let's start with Tara's question. Speak to what GSA is doing in terms of streamlining cloud procurement, make it easier for industry to sell to cloud and for the government to buy it. In that realm, I'm going to add to it, we have the RFI for the BPA that came out, as well as new potential policy that's coming about, you know, kind of the, the pay by the drink model to buy cloud. Walk me through, I know there's a lot there, Sonny, but walk me through the, the initial question from, from Tara, and then let's go into those other areas. I can share what we know today, but I, I know that that's not a complete view of where we're trying to go. So there's two or three things that are all colliding in the cloud space, right? So there's definitely, uh, there's no surprise that agencies are moving more and more systems to the cloud. They're leveraging the scalability, the cost model of the cloud. That is not new. That's been going on for the last 10 to 12 years now. I mean, we, we started some of that work back when I was at GSA as a CIO. At the same time, it's become clear that we need to continue to up our game in terms of the cybersecurity of cloud, especially when you start talking about multi-cloud integrations. You know, what is the, what does the system boundary look like when multiple cloud services are involved underneath it? Those things are complicated and they have to be improved and fixed. I think FedRAMP over time has done a great job to continuously improve and take stock of what can be done, but there's more that we need to do. So there's some limitations, structural limitations to the FedRAMP program that we're really thinking deep around how do we fix it. But that's one aspect of, you know, the cloud marketplace, having access to the federal marketplace is going through the FedRAMP process. So there's a bottleneck there that we need to untangle, but also make more, uh, more actionable, more powerful, continuous monitoring, data-driven uh, security rather than documentation-driven security. There's also new, new requirements and expectations coming, you know, solar winds and subsequently, you know, the recent uh, attack we saw on the pipeline tell us that there's supply chain risk that we haven't, frankly, as a government managed probably as adequately as we, as we could have. So the president recently announced a cybersecurity executive order that takes the bar even further. It's a very um, bold next step towards how we actually think about our cybersecurity of our software, right? That, that sets a 
new series of expectations that NIST is going to be involved in that ultimately will flow down on, uh, on the acquisition channels. So all those, this is kind of the situational awareness. You have new cybersecurity expectations and challenges coming our way. And you know, programs like FedRAM need to be scaled, new programs perhaps need to be developed around making sure that supply chain is well understood. You have agencies wholesale moving to the cloud. And you know, like, listen, if somebody wants to buy cloud service today, they can, right? Most cloud service providers are on our schedules program. They're available through IT70 and so forth. But you know, schedule, the bar to entry for schedules is fairly low. And so as we start thinking about how do we incorporate CMMC into this? How do we incorporate DFAR into this? How do we incorporate cybersecurity risk management into this? software assurance into this? How do we do, how do we require cloud service providers to do uh, real-time log aggregation and log sharing with CISA? Those requirements are never gonna be built into the schedules program. So now we're thinking about, okay, instead of having agencies building different cloud BPAs for their own purpose, perhaps it makes sense to build a government-wide vehicle to, to acquire cloud services that both lowers the barrier to entry for, agents, for companies that are already doing great work. If you're a company that's already gone through FedRAMP, you've already put these procedures in place, you're already doing reporting, you should have an easier bar to entry to get into this you know, multiple buying schedule or multiple buying vehicle, I should say. At the same time, you know, the buyer should be high enough so that when customers buy against it, they have inbuilt trust, that when they buy against this vehicle, they're gonna get 89 compliance, they're gonna get supply chain risk management and so forth and so on. And so the work that is required at transaction level is lower. It also requires us to, you know, like rethink how the uh, pricing model works for cloud, because historically when you're buying through schedules, it also leads to some limitations around, you know, unit pricing and how do you scale? And then it leads to limitations around how do you scale up and down as your demand goes up and down. So we're interested in thinking about if a vehicle uh, beyond schedules could actually allow us to have more flexibility like that, that lowers the risk for the market, but also lowers the cost burden and commitment on the government side. I don't know what the answers are. That's why we're starting with an RFI. What I would like to do is to make sure that the cloud service provider industry engages deeply into that conversation because we haven't figured it out yet, but we do think that there's a need and a, and a gap that is not being fulfilled today that I think if done well, if done well, could lower the barrier and add opportunity for the industry, but also significantly lower the barrier and complexity for the government. So more to come on that. It's early days, but as you saw, the RFI is first coming out. Basically, that's our attempt to say, let's have a conversation. Because in the absence of having something like that, we have individual agencies coming to us and saying, listen, we need an IDIQ for cloud, and we just need these three vendors or those three players or those three companies. And I think it's uh, important to have this conversation in a broad sense. And then it's going to have some sort of pools around it. Maybe IAS, PAS, and SAS have different pools, et cetera. You have to think through all those things. So please engage with us and give us your insights and we'll would love to engage with you and, and, and build something that actually works for you. So we got another question for the cloud, but before I go there, you, you said something very interesting that there, there's changes in the way people are buying. And I remember years ago, and I think actually you may have been at GSA at the time, GSA created an email as a service BPA. Okay, let's, let's make it easy to buy email. Right. And what did agencies end up doing? You probably remember this. They went to Alliant because they needed the services, not just the email. And, and I think that is a key consideration that, and I know it's early, as you said, you're, you're just kind of forming opinions, but did you all look at that experience and say, how can this next experience potentially be different? I know it's 11 years ago and cloud's much different, but- No, you're right. Uh, and I think that's, that's a key question as well, right? Like we have uh, uh, GWACs that allow both product and service acquisition. So anything from 8A Star 3 to Alliant, 
uh, moving forward. Uh, we're looking at de uh, deploying Polaris next year. And so the big question is, are those good enough? Are those sufficient for agencies to engage? Or do we need a products-oriented GWAC that is primarily focused on 80% product, 20% service type of a model? We don't know the answer to that. I think Alliant is a fantastic vehicle. At some point, we do have some challenges with Alliant ceilings coming up. We're thinking about what the next step looks like and how we, how we extend that or how we continue to make that service available uh, in the short run until we come up with the next iteration of it. But you're right. That's exactly the kind of, and, and, and those lessons are lost on us. I, I don't think that the idea here is that we're definitely going to do it as a separate thing. The question is that if Alliant is sufficient, why do these needs keep coming up from agencies, right? And so some of the things that are not like designed in Alliant is, for example, the consumption model that tracks to how real world consumption happens or multi-cloud model where not just a product, but security service implementation services could be packaged into one with multiple cloud providers, uh, with resellers or integrators acting as the intermediary or cloud broker models, where you could actually contract with a company as a, as a front end to be able to broker multiple clouds on behalf of an agency. Some of those things could be more like inbuilt to the vehicle. The question is, is there enough demand if you built it in, is there enough demand on the other side for uh, to drive the right behaviors? Or if something like Alliant or Stars is good enough for agencies to get what they need, that's where that's that's a constant question that we're internally asking ourselves. So, you're exactly right. Uh, that lesson isn't lost on us, and like that was actually a pretty painful lesson for GSA, right? Because it's a lot of work that goes into these things. One of the challenges that we also had with that acquisition is that we were actually making it primarily one or two vendor centric, right? It was like not enough diversity in that in that vehicle. So we want to obviously change that. But yeah, more to come on this. It's still in the RFI stage it may not go anywhere. And it may be that, hey, when we do the next iteration of Alliant, we can bake in some of these things and now we solve the problem. Or we may then, then discover that there is a need for cloud is big enough now, operational enough, you know, it, the, the demand is on the other side is there so that we should just actually fix it in a different way. So yeah, again, this is why you need to respond to the RFI and, and tell us more about what you think. Uh, that was really helpful, and I appreciate the fact that you fully admit that this it may go far, it may not go far, it may 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 curve, may may swerve over to Alliant, the next generation. Real quick, because I want to keep on this theme, because I think the other question that comes up is the services side of it, and and the the follow on to Oasis. But do you expect Alliant two to hit its ceiling soon? I, I know it's been going gangbusters, but do you expect? that to be a problem in, in when, or don't you know yet? It's, it is a problem coming our way. I can't say when, but Alliant is going to hit its ceiling and you know, it'll, ha it'll hit its ceiling before the next generation contract is fully in place. So we just have to kind of make some decisions. Obviously we're not going to lead a leave industry or our customers high and dry. So there's multiple ways to solve that problem. We're looking at all the options right now. All I will offer Sunny is my friends at GSA may not appreciate this, but 8A stars two hit its ceiling and it caused a big rigmarole across industry. Uh, and now people saw a lot of pain that, that came from hitting its ceiling. Hopefully Alliant yeah. too will not have that same well, challenge. That's one of the reasons why we're trying to see if to the extent possible, as we deliver at least new government-wide big contracts that we can figure out a way if it makes sense to not have ceilings on those contracts. Not always possible. And it, it's very situational dependent, but uh, we're at least making that case for contracts like Polaris and uh, subsequent like service marketplace uh, work that we're going to do. All right. All good stuff. All right. So let's move over to the services contract because I think that's another one where people are starting to scratch their head a little bit about the follow-on to Oasis. But one question that comes up often is Oasis has been really popular. Oasis has, again, DHS, Air Force, others across DOD have really been drawn to it, see the benefits of it. And while 
things have to evolve. No one would argue that. This seems like a huge evolution or maybe even a revolution around services. And it's leaving some people in industry scratching their head a little bit. And I know, again, no decisions are made, but there is a feeling within industry that I've been told that GSA is just going through the process, but they've made a decision. This is how the new services contract is going to look like. What's your take on this? How are you looking at it? And, and offer the audience a little bit of feedback. OSS has been a very successful program, both for us, for our customers, and for industry. At the same time, uh, OASIS, it has been successful because of the really high bar to entry into OASIS. The professional services requirement, the, uh, the expertise requirements have been fairly high. So when customers buy, they have full confidence that the pool of vendors that are available uh, have, uh, have a certain level of maturity, have a certain level of capability. That's great. But at the same time, there are many small innovative businesses coming into the market that are also left behind, right? And so there's been this big gap of fairly highly specialized contracts like Oasis and schedules, which are, you know, very broad. One of the things we want to, want to think about as we think about the, ne- the next, and, and again, I'm not going to use any Big Mac, it's not a final name. We're actually going through the process of uh, thinking about what the final name is going to be is how to balance both of those extremes, right? We need to have a pool of high barred entry, highly qualified vendors, similar to Oasis, that agencies can transact against. At the same time, we need to have other pools that allows agency, allow agencies to meet uh, their socioeconomic subcategory uh, requirements to actually pull into new forms of contracting, like competition at the task order level, for example, that I think can open up new ways of competing and therefore actually even lower the initial barrier to, barrier to entry, but then have a much more robust competition at the task order level. Uh, similar things like, uh, for example, um, non-hourly rate-based uh, or non-commercially, not, not, you know, uh, non-commercial uh, contracting types, so cost, cost-based contract type with types, which the DOD, for example, leverages quite a bit. This, this, this area is, is emerging. So like the, the challenge, like I've heard those comments as well. The, uh, let me just put something clear. We do not want to reduce the effectiveness of the new contract vehicle compared to Oasis. Oasis has been successful for certain reasons. We want to make sure that that is baked into the new contract vehicle that we build. And so if agencies and, cust- and, and, and vendors are comfortable competing in that environment, we want to make sure that that environment stays healthy and viable. But there's other requirements that are coming our way that we also need to address, right? And so when you think of highly innovative companies that have deep expertise around specialized areas like healthcare or uh, advisory services and so forth, we want to be able to make sure that the contract has flexibility to be able to address those. That doesn't mean that every competition, every task order is going to go through all of this competitive environment. That's why we're like looking at a pooling structure so that you can actually identify the right pool for you based on the time of need. And so will it be different? Yes. I think it will require us all to kind of rethink you know, how we address it, how we price things, how do we compete things in the right way? Perhaps, yeah, it's going kind of, kind to of change some things, but we don't want to take away from what's working. We want to add to it. One of the things that we're doing that I've made very clear, and I know Tiffany's uh, team has been doing a really good job of, is to have deep conversations with the customers because the same concern exists in our customer base as well. They are also asking, what happens when Oasis goes away? What, what, what happens next? Is this thing going to actually do what I need it to do? And so that those conversations are happening on a weekly basis. We're meeting not just at the department level, but also at the command level and, and working with people who actually use Oasis every day to make sure that those requirements at least are incorporated into the new vehicle, even if the new vehicle is going to be that plus much more, right? One of the things that I'm also very cognizant of is that the more vehicles we create, the more confusion it also causes. And like imagine being a small business that has to decide 
whether they should get on Stars or Polaris or Big Mac or Oasis or Alliant or Alliant Small Business or Two Jet or like I mean this is also getting a little ridiculous, right? So the idea is to if you're a business, you provide certain kind of services, you get on a vehicle, and then if you multiple if you qualify for multiple pools, if you're a woman-owned business and a small business uh, in services civil veteran category, and you also have specialty in certain areas, that you are you are then um, you know eligible to compete in those pools. And so as demand comes in to certain pools, you are now able to actually, instead of getting on three contracts, you got on one contract and now you have three times the opportunity. So give us some time. Um, you know, we don't want to break what works. Uh, industry should not worry that this is going to take opportunity away from the industry. If you're a company that's been very successful on Oasis, engage in the Big Mac conversation, make sure that you are also going to be very successful on, on the new contract. But if you're a company that was left out of Oasis, guess what? You now have an opportunity to also be successful in the new contract vehicle. And so that's the way I'm looking at it. Now, we want to make sure that we talk constantly with our customers and our suppliers. So we can wait until this thing gets released and then say, well, this is not going to work for us. Or you can engage with us now to make sure we build something that's going to actually work for you. We're a couple of years away from this being fully figured out and issued. So that's plenty of time for us to rethink how we're going to do competition, how we're going to do task ordering, how we're going to do pricing analysis. So engage with us, give us some ideas, and then let's make it so that it's successful for you. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a discussion I moderated at the Coalition for Government Procurement's recent conference. My guest was Sunny Hashmi, the Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a discussion I moderated at the Coalition for Government Procurement's recent conference. My guest was Sunny Hashmi, the Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. We had a question from Sandy. I think this is an easy one. She writes, because you made a comment about unlimited ceilings. Is it possible to have an unlimited ceiling? On GWACs, yeah, it is possible, but it's not easy. Right? It requires <laughs> uh, certainly approvals from internally RSP, but also in many cases OMB. Uh, you have to get a big designation before you can even consider it in many cases. And so we want to kind of make sure that the, all the requirements are built in so that we can actually track towards <laughs> those. Uh, but, you know, like a good example of that is, again, artists formerly known as Big Mac is, you know, um, potentially if it's a successful contract, we can't even predict in many cases what the true ceiling should be because it could be kind of what the volume is under Oasis is, or it could be 10 times that depending on how, which categories come online and so forth. So we want to make sure that we don't create something that a couple of years later, we find ourselves, you know, back to against the corner to figure out how we now rob from Peter to pay Paul because ceiling is becoming an issue. So that's our interest. Those decisions haven't been made yet and certainly not mine to make, but, uh, but we will keep you posted. That's, that's definitely our interest in some of these big GWACs that we're trying to pursue. I, like others, have never even thought that was a consideration. So it's good to hear that's at least on the table, whether it's, fully on the table and how is, is a different that comes later on albert writes kind of related to this but but not necessarily the 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 formerly known as big mac is gsa open to expanding the use of subscription-based it professional services to pr- permit agencies more flexibilities on ffp orders from fixed price orders i mean i would say generally speaking yes and we have a couple of uh small you know capabilities in that area already under things like hcats for example but 
the problem is that the more you veer away from like, oh, obviously firm prescribed is always preferred, but then you have cost base and you have planning material, but like the more you veer away from that model, ultimately you have to tie the dollars spent to mission outcomes. So subscription-based uh, services is great, but then if you can't have a clearly identified outcome that you're trying to drive, that can lead to a lot of, um, a lot of concern along the way around what did we actually buy? What did we actually get for the money that we spent? And so while everything's on the table, and if you have a great idea on how we can manage that in a structured way so that it doesn't add more risk on our side, 100% having the willing to have that conversation with you. Okay, Mike asks um, a very interesting question regarding, again, going back to Oasis a little bit. Would GSA consider adding cost types to the schedules program and separately maintaining the success of Oasis being a contract for the more experienced higher end industrial base? Moving to the best of both programs rather than downgrading Oasis and Oasis Small Business. So I think the, the question here is, is it easier to put a new contract out or is it easier to change the schedule? And my experience, and I'll let you answer this, is it's easier to put a new contract out. It's less about what's easier or harder. It's about what's practical, right? And so the problem is that we don't have a path to a practical path to moving schedules in a, such a fundamental way that open it up to non-cost or cost basis or non-commercial item uh, vendors. It's not just a GSA decision. This is uh, many cases driven in statute. And so while anything is possible, laws can be changed and so forth. And we are definitely open to having that conversation as part of the service marketplace analysis that we're gonna start under FMP. That is definitely on the table to, uh, to, to discuss. The fact is that we have our customers who have needs today. And so we need to be able to meet them where they are. Uh, keep in mind that a non-significant percentage of federal spent today goes through open market spending, which means that our current vehicles are not meeting the need of the customers that need them, right? So in many cases, yes, OSS has been successful, but OSS is a small fraction of the services market. Much of that services market is going through open market buying. And so that tells me that there's an opportunity for us to expand the scope and add more value to our customers because they have needs and they're going to have, they're having to issue those contracts literally directly every single time. That adds burden on you, the industry, right? Every single time you have to negotiate an open market bid, you now increasingly are going to have to do certain set aside conditions. You're going to have to do price evaluations differently. You're going to have to do section 89 compliance. You're going to have to do CMMC compliance. You're gonna, like every single time you're going to have to go through all of this. So our hope is if we build a vehicle broad enough that has on ramps, that has both in some pools, lower barrier to entry, which looks more like schedules so that broader set of capabilities can be made available, but also pools that are highly specialized like Oasis. That way our customers at the time of transaction can decide, is this a highly specialized requirement and therefore it should go to certain pools versus this is one that we want to compete broadly and therefore it goes to other pools. That's kind of the hope. Now, the old adage, adage stands, right? You can't have your cake and eat it too. Sounds great how we actually make it happen is going to be the key. Uh, and that's why, like, I think, you know, broadening schedule is a great idea, but there's no practical path to get there today. Could it happen five years from now, 10 years from now, next year? Everything is possible. But uh, the, also the other consideration with schedules is that there are baseline requirements that will go beyond what the schedule requirements are. And schedule requirements are pretty much follow, uh, you know, the, the FAR regulation as well as statute, right? So increasingly, we're going to be asking the industry to comply with and commit to TDR, commit to uh, providing uh, you know, country of origin for products, commit to providing certain types of cost bases, commit to providing, um, you know, complying with CMMC or you know, software uh, risk management and assurance. And 
those things can't be baked into the schedule, right? And so we're gonna have to have a higher bar to entry even in the base level for any new contract that goes out. And so that's a challenge for both of us, both government and industry. That's why I think just updating schedules to add cost type is not gonna solve the problem because agencies will still have to do all of that work at the time of transaction, which adds, starts to add up both for the industry and for the agencies. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a discussion I moderated at the Coalition for Government Procurement's recent conference. My guest was Sunny Hashmi, the Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a discussion I moderated at the Coalition for Government Procurement's recent conference. My guest was Sunny Hashmi, the Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. Let me start with the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. We know a couple things. GSA has been very clear. You're adding it to the scope of Polaris. You're adding it to the scope of 8A Stars 3. There's, you're adding to the scope wherever you think is, is most important. And walk me through a little bit about what, how you're thinking about not just CMMC, but the supply chain more broadly. I can tell you that we're at the very early stage as a government-wide, like I'm not just GSA, but government-wide, we are at the early stage of really getting a handle of our supply chain, both on the product side and the services side. I think it's clearer than ever before that this is an area that we have underinvested in over the last 20 years, right? Not having the right visibility into it, not having the right control over it, not really being able to have the insights that we need to be able to make the right sound decisions. And that's been unfortunately made clear over the last year with SolarWinds. So this is an area, if, if, you, if, you, if you want to invest stock in a company, and please don't take this as a, this is a joke, if, if you can solve a problem in supply chain risk management, I think you'll be just fine. Because this is an area that's not just, uh, okay, this is busy right now, but the next year we're going to be the new thing. This is going to be the next 10 years of keeping all of us very, very, very busy. And as things you know, start, like I remember this, this these kind of conversations in the early days of cloud where everybody was like, I don't know what this cloud thing is. Is it going to be around? And is this just a flash in the pan? And is it even a real thing on the other side? It, it got worse before it got better. Lots of complexity, lots of noise. And then it started to get, get routine, right? So the, unfortunately, supply chain risk management is also going to get more complex before it starts to simplify. Right now, we're in the expansion mode. We are, as a government, realizing that we have lots and lots of supply chain risk. Early phases of this, so the first, I would say 1.0 of supply chain risk management looks like CMMC, NIST 800-171, Section 889 compliance, uh, and then now the cybersecurity EO that primarily focuses on software products. Those are great policies, but then ultimately we have to convert them into acquisition, right? We have two choices here. We can say, this is not an acquisition problem, and agencies are just responsible. So you, we'll sell you whatever you want, but then you have to deal with, is this company owned by you know, foreign interests? Are they complying with section nine? Where's the latest audit, audit report? Now that we've signed a contract, they're saying, we're not gonna do CMMC. So what do we do now? Like all those kind of things fall on the agency side. And we believe that if you multiply that problem out across the entire federal government, it becomes an untenable problem. So imagine every, the, you think contracting takes time today, imagine four times as long for every single task order or every single open market contract that you write. Because now, in addition to winning the work, you have to prove all of these different hurdles to various parties in the agency. And any one of them can say, actually, no, these guys are not compliant. They're not serious about NIST 800-171. So we'll kill the contract, start all over again. We think it's a bad idea. We think it's a bad outcome, right? So the idea for us is, 
if we can if we can reasonably start to bake in these requirements in our GVAX and our government-wide max, that hopefully industry has to, it may feel like it's additional burden, but you have to do that burden once because that burden is going to be there whether you work through us or you work directly with the agency. If the agency is not asking you about CMMC today and the defense agency, they're not doing their job. If, you're, if an agency is not asking you about cybersecurity risk management today or cybersecurity supply chain management today, they're not doing their job. More and more of these things are going to be required. They're going to be written in the FAR. And so what we can do is to build them into our new contract so that you have to go through that process once. And then there's inbuilt trust in our agencies and they buy against us. Similarly, things like the cybersecurity EO that you guys saw, if, if you've already documented your supply, your software bill of materials, or you know, a document that outlines how you do secure coding, or you know, your DevSecOps processes, you can document it once and then agencies can reuse it every single time. You don't have to find it every time and show it to the agencies and explain it to them. That's our hope. But I think there's a lot more work we need to do. And to me, the missing link right now is real-time data to do a lot more of this stuff. We don't have the data. We don't have data around operational controls, audit controls. We don't have data around... In the cloud space, we have more data than in other spaces because of FedRAMP. But even then, it's not sufficient, right? So things like verified vendor product uh, portal that, we, that Jason mentioned, things like TDR are going to continue to allow us to at least collect and then operationalize the data that makes sense. And so in an individual out of context way, sometimes it may feel like, oh my God, GSA keeps asking me for more and more and more data and comply with more and more and more things. Our hope is that we can have a conversation that allows us to explain to you that yes, that we understand the burden is increasing on you, but that burden is gonna be there whether you work through us or you work directly with an agency Let's just at least do it once in a systematic way. And then we can present that data to agencies. As an example, we're creating a dashboard right now for Section 889 compliance, right? That's been a big thing over the last year and a half. 90 plus percent, 97% of the products and services that are on our schedule are now Section 889, Part A and Part B compliance. That was a lot of work for us to do. Thousands of contracts had to be updated. Uh, mass modifications had to be done. Many of you got maybe a call or two about it. But now that that's done, now we have a dashboard that every vendor is listed. We can actually provide a red, yellow, green indicator on where every vendor is. And now when an agency wants to buy it, they don't have to ask you for the same dumb question all over again, right? So that's our hope. So bear with us. Again, this is an area which is not going away. We're going to be very busy, all of us, in the supply chain risk management area for the next 10 years. My job is going to be to hopefully reduce friction as much as we can. Sonny, we could talk so much longer. You've been great. You've been very generous. I have more questions for you, so we will have to get together and, and answer I those questions. So uh, if we could give uh, Sonny a, a virtual round of applause. Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you, guys. Thank you for inviting me, Jason. Great job, really as always. Great conversation, as always. I appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. You made it. Checked out of office to check into the sweet views of 
This place where the kids aren't asking for the Wi-Fi. Mom, can we go to the pool? And when you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Your story. It lives in River City. Where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel. Where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another. Where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha. Told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.